Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MRP Tech Podcast. This is episode 176. My name is Matt, and this is the weekly podcast discussing everyday tech for everyday people. If you are joining us today on the live stream for the first time, what I would invite you to do is go over to my website, mrptechreviews.com. You can subscribe to the audio podcast as well as have links to all of the video uh, episodes that I'm posting on YouTube. And you can check out podnuts.com. That's the tech podcast network where um, there are a wide range of technology podcasts that are available on that website as well. Today is a very special episode. I have a very special guest with me today who I've been wanting to get on the, this, this podcast for a, a quite a while now. And so I'd like to introduce you to Jeff Stevens, who is an Atlas missile expert. And so Jeff, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. It's good to be here. It's a, a fun topic for me and hopefully uh, I won't bore too many people, but uh, I've done a lot of research on the, the Atlas launching systems and especially the uh, 556th uh, Strategic Missile Squadron there in Plattsburgh. So before we get into the Atlas uh, missile topic, uh, just for those who are watching the live stream for the first time or, or joining us today, how about you just take a second to t tell them a little bit about yourself and, and where you're from and that type of thing. Well, I'm from the, uh, the Midwest, Central Illinois, and uh, grew up uh, during the space program. Um, I was a kid uh, when they were launching all the uh, manned missions and kind of grew up with just a fascination for space. Uh, then uh, growing up into adulthood, I uh, spent uh, 27 years working for Caterpillar, the manufacturer of uh, heavy uh, machine equipment, mining equipment, and construction equipment. And then uh, I have since retired from there and been retired from there and have since uh, been able to spend a little bit more time following passions like uh, researching Atlas missiles. Um, I probably got started in earnest uh, researching Atlas uh, 2005 or so and then uh, visited a site in 2008. Now, where are you from originally? Are you from New York originally, or um, no? Actually, that's a good segue to why did you, how did you get lost up in uh, the north woods of New York? Um, no, I'm actually from Central Illinois. Grew up here. Always have lived here, and uh, I, I found uh, Plattsburgh actually kind of by accident um, when looking for uh, something to do, and I've always been interested in uh, space flight. I did research, of course, on the Saturn V, the manned uh, moon missions and that, and decided, well, that was a little too easy. A lot of information out there, um, too easy to get. And the early uh, manned missions uh, were actually launched on an Atlas uh, launch vehicle. And I thought, Atlas missile, I think I'll do a search on that. And I did. And it came up with uh, launching sites down in Roswell, New Mexico, um, from Walker Air Force Base. And people were... Uh, rehabbing those, trying to make uh, living facilities out of them. I said, that's fascinating. Did a little more digging. Again, this is 2008, 2009 or, and, or earlier. There wasn't any information about anything in New York, and I stumbled upon uh, Fitz's site, and I go, boy, there was missile silos in way up north in New York. That I've never heard of that. Tried to find more information, and there was none. I said, okay, there's my challenge. I want to learn more about the uh, missile silos up in uh, New York. So that got me started. And that's sort of where I met you. Um, my fascination f with the Atlas missile comes from uh, not really uh, 
I didn't have an interest in it for a very long time. And my older brother actually had the interest and he toured one of the silos in the area. And I, I didn't think much of it at the time, but over the several years of him talking about it, I sort of got interested in it. And eventually I uh, got in touch with the same person that you just mentioned and um, was, was actually offering, just, just looking to speak with him and, and take a walkthrough of the tour. And then I show up and here is this Atlas missile expert uh, who gave us a great tour of, of the, uh, of the facility. And so uh, ever since then, that's when I've been wanting to get you on the show. So let's um, talk a little bit about um, how the, like the Atlas missiles sort of came to be and what, uh, what, why they were such a big deal. Well, the Atlas missile um, actually kind of has an interesting uh, backstory or history to it. Um, Convair uh, division of uh, general dynamics uh, was researching long-range, longer-range missiles. Back uh, in the early 50s and mid-50s, we had uh, intermediate-range missiles uh, such as Thor or Jupiter, and we didn't have any uh, long-range ICBM-type missiles. And back about then, the Cold War was starting to heat up, and the military thought, gee, we've got a perceived missile gap here, and we better do something. So Convair... um, finally got a bid from the Pentagon to continue the development on what became the Atlas missile back uh, of 1955 or so. And that was developed, actually the first launch, test article launch was in 1956, I believe. I'd have to double check. That's 55, 56, or 57. And that started it. Um, it wasn't a, uh, you know, a research and development project right off the bat where you say, I'm going to develop a missile. Convair had the foresight foresight of saying, this is a good launch system, we believe. Let's keep funding it, and then eventually we'll get some money from the Pentagon to finish the job. And that's what they did. Now, I... um I don't claim to be an expert on this by any means, so so correct me if I'm wrong. The Atlas missile didn't actually have much of a physical structure to it. It was more of a like a, a balloon-type structure that was... It was filled with um, like a, a liquid propellant and it, it was very, uh, it was very difficult to keep that shape of the missile. Am I am I right about that? Um, yeah, it's a monocoque structure, which is a fancy word for there's two balloons that you fill with either a fuel or liquid oxygen, and that gives it the structural strength to withstand the various g loads that it goes through uh, in normal flight. So yeah, it's like blowing up a balloon, and if you let the air out of a balloon. Um, in this case, the missile would collapse. And there's a couple examples of collapses with uh, museum articles, and it really it really does collapse like a tin can. It can't support itself unless there's um, air or liquid oxygen or nitrogen to keep the skin inflated. So in the mid-50s, they, they developed this Atlas missile, and um, it was it was not meant to be a first strike type of thing. It was meant to be a deterrent. Is that is that right? With all of our um, ICBM missiles that uh, have uh, nuclear war have or had have nuclear warheads on them, they have never, ever been first strike. They've always been defensive weapons. I've interviewed enough of the commanders and enough of the uh, um, colonel type and uh, command type people and it's almost an insult when you say, would we have ever launched first? Um, that, that's a great way to get kicked out of a room with those guys. Um, no, they would not launch without uh, one uh, authorization from the president of the United States. And it was 
always assumed and still is that it would be launched in defense. Uh, we would never be a first strike. I do yeah. have kind of an ancillary uh, uh, story about that. I was down in the Titan II Museum down in Tucson, Arizona, and one of their tour guides who was a uh, actually worked at the facility as uh, a BMAT said they had a couple of colonels from the Soviet era um, missile, um, Air Force, whatever their equivalent was, and they they were talking about the guidance systems. And with the Titan II, the guidance system is always up and running, ready to launch. And matter of fact, that missile launches in under a minute, typically. And when they were talking about that to the Soviet uh, folks, they said, well, we couldn't really launch that quickly. Our uh, guidance um, uh, gyros were not didn't have the best bearings in the world. And if we kept them spun up all the time, we'd have to replace them every four to six months which is a three to seven day uh, process, they said. So that's in the early days. Now, when you think about that, um, the Soviet type missile, um, if it took them a while to spin those bearings up, which is maybe like an hour to two hours to spin the gyros up to get a stable guidance platform, that's not a defensive weapon. That's a first strike weapon on the Soviet side because if you had to take an hour or so to actually get your weapon ready, um, the other guys have already struck. So that's kind of a sobering thought there. It is It is kind of a sobering thought. And I I would assume that this sort of all started with the, the launch of Sputnik. Would I, am, I, am I wrong with that? That when they started launching satellites into space, that's when the U.S. became really concerned about uh, the missile capability of Russia? Yeah, that started, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, the paranoia of, oh my gosh, the... The Soviets have this tremendous uh, advantage over us missile-wise. Well, it, historically looking back, they did have a little bit of an advantage. However, we did have or could have had uh, a satellite launched uh, about the same time they did. But that's kind of what started the Cold War is when Sputnik went up and then they launched uh, a dog into orbit and then uh, then they launched uh, Yuri Gagarin, uh, the first astronaut, into uh, into orbit. And we were way behind as far as manned space flight goes at that point. So then, you know, mid-50s, we have this the development of the Atlas missile. Um, there are several different iterations of the, the missiles, like A, B, C, D, E, and F. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's kind of confusing. Um, an Atlas is an Atlas, the basic structure with the two tanks, and uh, monocoque design is the same. What are different is A, B, and C were test articles. A only had two engines. It was more of a uh, shakeout of the design to make sure that the uh, structure would hold up. And there were probably more than a couple of flights, but one flight in particular where um, the Atlas launched as a test flight and it started to tumble end over end. And if you did that, even with a modern day uh, rocket, it would probably self-disintegrate. I believe it took one full rotation, nose over tail, and the range safety officer had to destroy it. It didn't break, fall apart as one would expect. It was kind of that point forward that everyone said, yeah, you know, this monocoque design, that, that's very robust and we can trust it because that's huge aerodynamic loads on, on any kind of flying body when you flip it over end to end. So that was, that was a test shot. And, and so there were several accidents sort of in, in different places. I, I believe Cape Canaveral was, was one location where an atlas actually had to be uh, had to 
self-terminate. Um, are, are you familiar with any of those? Both the Eastern Test Range and the Western Test Range, Eastern being Canaveral, the Western being Vandenberg, um, all have destroyed about every kind of missile you can imagine because of some type of flight failure. So, and Atlas was no exception. And it's unbe- uh, it's unbelievable um, the setback that happens when when a rocket like that will explode because the whole launch facility is basically taken out at the same time. Yeah, there's been at least one. There's two that I can recall that uh, actually blew up on the pad. And when that happens, there's a lot of uh, electrical connections and plumbing and all that stuff that has to be redone. So yeah, it does set them back. But it doesn't really didn't really set the program back that much because uh, with the Atlas D, so we have A, B, C. Those are test articles, and then you have uh, D, E, and F. D is the uh, beginning of the production uh, deployed missiles. But they had at least four, if not six, launch sites at Vandenberg for that. So if you destroyed one launch site, not that that's a good thing, but you did have backup. You could launch from other sites as far as test uh, shots go. Okay. And so so after they're finished uh, sort of the development of this, how many Atlas sites are we talking about across the country uh, were built? Well, that's a good question. Let me uh, kind of go through here. Um, total deployed Atlas missiles, D, E, and F, uh, there are 129 of them. Now that includes the, the test launch facilities in Vandenberg and um, I believe Canaveral also. But the reason I'm hesitating on Canaveral, I don't believe they had any F uh, launch capabilities as far as an armed nuclear warhead on it. Vandenberg being a little more secure Air Force base, um, they definitely did. There's a story when Khrushchev took a, uh, a ride through uh, Vandenberg on a train and then uh, the tracks go right through the middle of the base and right through the middle of the uh, missile fields. Um, this was 50, late 50s. Um, they raised, uh, took uh, the gantries off uh, at least five of the Atlas missiles along with um, some Thor missiles too as he went through just to show them, you know, we're not bluffing. We do have this launch capability. And uh, I can't imagine the impression that left on him after seeing those missiles up raised and locked. Yeah, it's it's it was a really a completely different time back then, and that's that's sort of what I want to talk about. Um, you had th- things, you know, the 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 Cold War was really in in like rampant. Uh, uh, everybody was kind of in, in a panic. You had uh, not only Russia and, and U.S. with nuclear weapons, but you also had. Um, the U.S. and other countries around the world, they were developing these plans for, you know, nuclear war. And what you have is um, the not only the continuation of government things, but like the st- st- strategic air command that was a big deal in our country. Do you do you want to speak to that at all? Um, only kind of on the outside, because I don't know exactly what all um, the strategic air command um, did other than it was in command of all the bombers and missiles um the uh, the way that they would interface with the missiles was kind of twofold if there was uh, and a little bit later remind me to talk about the uhf antennas and vhf antennas definitely um the the strategic air command had a uh, an airplane in the air called looking glass and that was up 24 7 and that could relay the launch codes from the president down to each launching site. And back in the day, 
Um, we had, you know, the DEF um, Atlas. We had the Titan One. We had the Minuteman One. And 1963, we would have the Titan Two. Um, that was one way through looking glass flying. The other way is that there were um, at least two Minuteman missiles that had transmitters on them that would, in essence, do the same thing, transmit the launch codes from the president as one went uh, east-ish and one went west-ish to make sure they covered all the uh, missile launch facilities. So that's kind of where I stopped with SAC. Okay. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sort of segueing into... Uh Plattsburgh Air Force Base being one of the largest SAC bases in the Northeast, and the fact that a lot of the the uh, Atlas missiles were actually farther west, but they uh, chose Plattsburgh Air Force Base as a location to host these um, these Atlas missiles silos in our area, in, in my area. And uh, so let's talk about uh, sort of the, the origins of how that happened, if you know anything a little bit about uh, the Plattsburgh area. I'll only know kind of uh, ancillary stories, and it's only what I've read in the uh, newspapers of the day. Um, I, I don't remember the senator's name, but, uh, of course, politics always comes into play when you're talking about a major expense. And whoever the senators were from New York did a, an incredible job to lobby to get these sites placed in New York. And that's the only reason um, I can think of that they would be there. The, the other reason would be geographical. Um, from, Platt, from the Plattsburgh area, you can reach out and touch even the southeast corner of China and anywhere in between. And so that means we had 100% coverage of the globe between uh, New York and uh, the southwest and upper Midwest. Now, what was the range for, for the Atlas missiles? They were um, capable of 6,500 nautical miles downrange. So that'll reach out and touch the far side from Plattsburgh of uh, southeast, easily southeast China. And as far as like hitting the actual target that that they were aiming for, what was the sort of uh, general distance that they were usually accurate in, in hitting that target? They have something circle error, error of probability or CEP. And it says most of the time, in essence, I'm kind of summarizing here. Most of the time is it will fall within or less than a mile. So 90 some odd percent of the time, um, all launches will fall within um, a mile of their intended target. And when um, we're talking about a, a nuclear missile, you know, a mile is not going to make much of a difference, right? Exactly. The The guidance guys that I've talked to, would they, they swear up and down that they are within feet. And you get down to exactly what you just said is that it really doesn't matter. As long as you're within a mile, whatever's there will no longer be. So um, just recently, I was uh, going through some old newspaper articles. And um, it, the interesting fact to me about the, the Plattsburgh silos being built was, um, and this, I'm, I've, I've got your, your website up here that I'm, that I'm showing, um, how in the late 50s, um, the Army Corps of Engineers would come in and they would drill boreholes in specific areas, uh, sort of testing, uh, you know, the ground, so to speak. And it was kind of done in secret. No, nobody knew what they were doing, but everybody assumed that silos were going in. And um, do you have anything that you'd want to talk about that about? 
Yeah, actually, it's kind of entertaining. There's um, at the end of the day, there's no rhyme or reason of why a why site one is just outside of Champlain, for example. Um, when they came in to do the corings, the uh, landowners were notified by I'm not sure which governing body it was, but they said you will let the Corps of Engineers on your property to do uh, core borings um, at this location. Uh, there was a couple of farmers that uh, objective, objected strenuously to that, saying, I won't let them on. Um, and I don't really know what the outcome of that was, other than I know this, the Corps of Engineers, or COE, um, got their core borings. I came across an article, and, and, and I'm just sort of paraphrasing when I say this, but um, the, the article, there was a, the, the Shazy or the Denimora, uh Shazy Lake Denimora silo. They, there was a farmer that owned the land, and uh, the Army Corps came in, and they actually they, they wiped out some of his crops. So he started a lawsuit uh, about wanting the government to pay for it. And eventually he actually posted a sign saying, uh, you know, all government employees keep out or something like that. And later on, the government went back and reimbursed him for, for the property. And then they eventually built the silo there anyway. So uh, just some really interesting stories about um, the, the local people at the time and how you had the airbase there um, and there was support for the silos and there was, um, you know, people voicing their concern about the silos. And the biggest thing that I got was um, the fact that in, in all of the, the meetings leading up to the silos being built that um, the U.S. Air Force and, and everybody else involved were basically saying um, this isn't going to make the, the greater Plattsburgh area more dangerous because we're building all of these silos that, you know, and I, I sort of laughed at that because, you know, we're building nuclear missile silos. And of course, that's going to create some sort of a target, even though, um, you know, these these were um, sort of deterrence. So what do you what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, absolutely. It didn't make Plattsburgh any more or less a, a target. You're already a strategic air command base. You're running uh, B-47s in and out of there, um, tankers also. Um, it, it was a target anyway, so it wouldn't make any difference if you had missiles there or not. Um, and actually striking the missiles, um, I'm pretty sure the Soviets knew that the ones in the mountains, would they would probably never be able to hit. They're just too secluded, and they're in the mountains. Um, they're just not an easy target. And so, yeah, yeah any more of a target. I, I completely agree with you. And uh, for those of you who aren't from this area, uh, the the area is a quite mountainous area. Uh, all of the silos were sort of built relatively close by, but in sort of remote locations. And uh, back in the early 1960s, we didn't even have a major interstate going through our area. Route 9 was the major road from New York City all the way to Montreal. Um, so there was no major interstate. Interstate 87 now is the, is, the, is the major interstate that comes through our area. And um, so it was very remote location. And um, many people, even today, aren't even sure exactly where the silos are built, uh, are, are located. You know, that's how well-placed they were. And, and you'd have to actually do some research to, to find where they are. Yeah, one of the things, thinking of uh, where the silos are located in that, um, you see these videos on YouTube and that, and it sounds like a romantic journey to go into this silo, and it looks like it's well-lit, and you could, you know, waltz in and out without any issues at all. Um, all of these, except for, I think, three, are owned by private citizens, 
So if you go on the property, you are trespassing. Um, and the only thing I can say is get a hold of the owner, ask permission if you can. And I actually strongly discourage people from going in these sites. Um, towards the end of this uh, interview, we'll uh, show some videos and give you an idea of what type of condition these sites are in. And if you can imagine going into a cave with no lights at all, and there's hazards that you can trip, that you can cut yourself on, that you can fall about 170 feet straight down, um, they're not safe. So don't do it. And I'm going to I'm going to second that, and I will say that you have to kind of be a uh, a special type of person to want to go in these silos. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the decommissioning in a little bit. But basically, these silos were in use for a period of time. They were decommissioned. After that, they fell into disrepair. Most of them filled up with water. And you're talking about things like lead, PCBs, asbestos, uh, any. Uh, uh, dangerous uh, metal objects all over the place that are covered in rust, uh, not to mention the chemicals that were used with the, with the, uh, the warheads themselves. So these are not safe places to go, and I would definitely recommend that um, you, you don't go in them. Um, and, and I'd also uh, second the notion that um, all of these are private property and that... Um, there are some owners that that don't want anybody on the property due to various reasons. There are other owners that are willing to to um, to walk you on the property, but they probably won't bring you in the silo. Um, and it's better to contact the property owners first rather than trespass because you're going to put yourself in a terrible position. Um, you know, you will get arrested, you will pay fines, and and they're not cheap. So um, you have to kind of. Um, be a special person and you have to be with somebody who's an expert or a professional who knows the silo when you're walking through because there are so many hazards there. Yeah, and if there's anybody out there that wants to know more details about what different silos look like, um, they're free to send me an email, um, atlasmissile at gmail.com. I'd be glad to engage with them in any side conversations they want to have. I have a lot of videos that uh, I can share. So I that's not a problem. I just am very concerned that somebody would say, oh, these are easy to get in and out of, and they are not. They are definitely not easy to get in and out of. And um, so let's take a step back in time. And so now we're in the early 1960s in the Plattsburgh area, and these silos are being built. Uh, they hire local miners and other contractors to, to build these silos. How much money went into building each particular silo? They're each... Uh, I may not have the numbers right. I'll have to look them up. I want to say about $14 million back in the day, each site. Um, but one of the interesting things about the construction is that they started just the uh, beginning of them. And they weren't doing all 12 sites exactly at the same time, but fairly closely together. But it started in the fall, actually started in July, and then went through December. And 1960 and 1961 winters were the two coldest winters, I believe, on record. Uh, in the Plattsburgh area, there was only three days, however, lost to uh, cold weather. It was uh, 16 or 20 degrees below zero with uh, 30 mile an hour wind. And uh, there was a couple days that were lost there. But if you can imagine um, pouring concrete when it's uh, below zero and trying to get everything literally to stick together from the previous day, it was a huge challenge. They'd be chipping ice off the previous day's pour. Um, trying to you know get the uh, 
best uh, joint that they could from the old concrete to the new. Huge, huge uh, challenge. So I've got a question for you coming in from the chat room. It says, uh, Jared wants to know, did all of the Atlas silos contain a missile all the time before they were decommissioned? It seems like even just building a silo without holding a missile would be just as effective as a deterrent. Um, there was long answer here. Sorry about that. That's okay. When they're building these missile sites, they were not classified, obviously, because you had about... Uh, anywhere from 200 to 500 workers on these sites, and you couldn't vet them all. I'm, I'm sure there were Soviet spies amongst the construction crew, and they would know if there was a missile in it at the end of the day or not. Um, it was when they hauled the missile down the road, it was a actually a public spectacle to see the missile go down the road. Um, you could stand outside the fence and see the missile being uh, loaded onto the launch elevator, and you could see the missile go down uh, into the silo. So it was well known whether or not there was a missile in it. So that's kind of, are there missiles in all the sites? Yes, there were. The only exception would be if there would be an, uh, an engine-type related, I'm going to say, failure. Um, from time to time, they'd have a, uh, they call it a MAPG mobile um, checkout. Uh, uh, it was a short semi-trailer. And it had the instrumentation in it to exercise the missile. So they raise the missile up typically and gimbal the engines, go through the hydraulic systems and that. And if something serious would fail, um, they'd take the missile off alert and uh, haul it back to the Air Force Base. And they had a one spare um, at all uh, Atlas F uh, missile bases. So they take the spare and uh, put that in place of the one that they needed to repair. So with the exception of, and I don't recall reading um, any serious failures with any of the missiles in, in the Plattsburgh area. So I'm going to say 100% of the time there was a missile um, in the silo at all times. Oh, that's really that's really interesting. Uh, so so we have all these silos that, that were built in, in a cold, really cold, rugged environment. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what entailed with um, making these silos nuclear hardened at all? Yeah, I wish I had a real romantic story and could say, you know, they added all this good stuff to the concrete so it's five times stronger. No, it was uh, standard Portland cement. Uh, I believe it's 5,000 PSI or maybe six. And it was poured with, uh, well, the only additive I believe was to reduce air bubbles in it and nothing special. They did have... Uh, I believe it was two inch rebar. Um, each rod was a thousand pounds and they lower those one at a time. And the, uh, the reinforcing, uh, rebar looks like a bird's nest when they get done. And I, the kind of the, the running, I don't know if it's joke or commentary was, I don't know how we're going to get concrete in there because there's just way too much steel. And there is nothing special. As a matter of fact, I've drilled, uh, holes in the top of the, uh, top of an LCC, um, uh, ceiling to mount lights and it's just like you're drilling into any other concrete like out in the driveway it's there's it's not hard what makes it um, impenetrable is the amount of uh, reinforcing rebar that's in it and that's a lot of things that i keep coming across is that you know a lot of when you see these these videos of the the atlas silos it, it they look like they're cement walls everywhere and and towards the top of the silo i think they're nine feet 
of cement or something like that. But these are really steel structures, you know, with with rebar, and they just poured cement on them to <laughs> to, uh, to to do that. Um, so we had all of these these silos built in a really short period of time. Um, I, I don't recall what you said, over 100 missile silos being built at the same time, sort of in, in record record time. Um, then uh, they were operational for a very short period of time. So let's, let's kind of get into that a little bit. Okay, just kind of capping off the summary of construction. So they started in 60 or 61, and they were all done by... 63 at the latest so it's incredible timeline um i want to go on um, in, in the chat go room ahead. uh we have a uh, bigfoot 1944 is saying 14 million dollars back in 1960 would have been 120 million dollars today that's fascinating that sounds, right. that sounds about right and i could be wrong on the 14 million i i'd have to go back and double check that, that. i'm not right. a numbers guy <laughs> I want to back up just a little bit more, um, talking about construction in the various sites. Um, the site one, I'm just going to go around uh, clockwise to all the 12 sites real quick, just name the cities. Uh, they had one near Champlain, near Alberg, Vermont, near Swanton, Vermont, Willsboro, Lewis, Osable Forks, Riverview, Redford, Danamora, Brainerdsville, Ellenburg, and Moores. And those are all the 12 sites. And again, you can reference those from my uh, website if you're curious and the uh, the best way to go through when were things ready uh, is actually going through a cuban missile timeline um, so if we go back to october of 1962 and remember i said everything was done in 1963 um, so in 1962 the start of the cuban missile crisis began um, october 22nd defcon 3 was uh declared so that's dense um, defense condition three which means uh, we're going to be ready to launch uh, bombers and that uh, it's just a heightened state of uh, of uh, defense now um, okay that was the 22nd of october the 23rd we had two sites swanton and ellenberg that were um, on alert now on alert means i've got the uh, nuclear weapon on top of the missile and this missile could be launched so two out of twelve on the 24th of October 1962, DEFCON 2. Now we're at the point that if uh, we were going to do something uh, like launch the missiles, we're one step away from that. This is how close that is. If it went to DEFCON 1, everything would have been, not everything, but the majority of our assets would have been launched. Wow. So everyone's on edge. So that was the 24th. Now the 26th, we have three more, actually two more, come on, Alberg and Willsburg. Willsboro, the 28th of October, we have Brainerdsville come on. And then on the 28th, it, this is what I call the end of the crisis. Um, the blockade worked. Um, Khrushchev was standing down a little bit saying, okay, well, we can work this out. Um, all, all the while, the negotiations of removing the Thor um, intermediate missiles from Turkey is going on, which is really the I call it the kingpin of negotiations of stopping the Cuban Missile Crisis is we took these uh, missiles out of Turkey and their uh, intermediate range, which would have easily hit uh, Soviet Russia at the time. So that was, around, I believe, it was the 28th. So the 29th, we're still at DEFCON 2. It didn't mean that we uh, lowered our defense condition. Uh, Lewis comes on, Osable Forks come on, Danamora uh, comes on, then... 
or into November, and moors in the Champlain come on. Now, on the 20th of November, we go back to DEFCON 4, which means we're standing down. We still have two sites remaining um, that have not made, uh, not made alert status. They do uh, make alert status by uh, the 9th of December, 1962. So there's two sites uh, that absolutely missed the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and probably four more that uh, weren't really part of the main part of the crisis. They wouldn't have been launch capable um, if the, uh, the Turkish uh, negotiations had fallen through. So we had at least four, five, at least six, half the... Uh, half the 12 that could have been launch capable during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so that's sort of the point that I, I want to make that, you know, yes, there's this an enormous amount of money went into building these missile silos and then um, they were built as deterrents. So this, you know, some of these silos were actually helpful in sort of deterring that Cuban Missile Crisis from becoming, uh, um, you know, more of what it, would have would have been had uh, you know Russia wanted to push things even farther. You know those those silos did their job. They were the deterrents. That is that's correct. Um, and I, I think they not only did we have the Atlas missile, there's also the Titan one, which is very similar. That was a, a rigid uh, superstructure and a full two stage missile. Um, same type of warhead, similar type of range, and we had those ready also. So far as a deterrent goes. We had a lot of assets that could do a whole lot of damage in a very bad way. Um, and if that's not enough for deterrence, I don't know what would be. So Cuban Missile Crisis is over. The, you know, the missiles go back on standby or whatever you would call it. And um, they're operational for a little over three years. Am I correct? Yeah, they were all decommissioned um, no later than 1965. So after 1965, um, the silos were, so they were operational from 1962 to 1965 or thereabouts. And so after 1965, what happened to all of these silos? They were um, deemed to be, I think it took them about a year to say uh, they were surplus. The military no longer wanted them. Um, and then they were, uh, just like any other uh, government asset, uh, opened up for bid for anybody to buy, but they were a little bit, uh, I don't know, restricted or constrained. They said, first of all, it can go to local government um, or education. And if, if that fits the bill and they want to buy them, um, that's fine. So a lot of these sites, uh, for example, Moore's, um, that's owned by the, the county, and that's where they have all their uh, various road uh, supplies, salt, gravel, uh, scrapers, and that type of stuff. That's where they store them. Same thing with Danamora. That's the, the county uh, maintenance uh, area. Uh, Alberg was, too, for a while, but they've moved their facilities uh, elsewhere. So those are the first things. And then uh, there were two sites that are owned by, uh, let's see, the New York University, and that was Lewis and uh, Sable. And they decided, the, the schools decided, no, we're just going to mothball the sites and not do anything with them. And that was a, a huge win if somebody would have bought them back in when they sold them in 80, 85, 82, because they had the launch elevators 
the cryogenic tanks and everything else still in them. They were next best thing to pristine, except for some vandalism. Um, the other sites, when they were sold, um, scrappers came in. They took all the uh, stainless steel, all the uh, high dollar items out and uh, just yanked and ripped and got them out the best they could. And they left the uh, steel superstructure because the Atlas uh, missile sat in a steel cribbing, which was suspended uh, by four very large spring uh, assemblies in the silo. And everyone kind of, not everyone, but quite a few people ask, well, why didn't they take the steel? Well, you couldn't take it out uh, effectively, cost efficiently. It just burned too much uh, acetylene to uh, cut through the steel in there. So they just abandoned the structures in place typically. Okay. And and so comparing the Atlas silos to um, other silos that were decommissioned, we, we talked about this briefly off air yesterday, but other silos out west were, were um, the top portions of it were imploded. Uh, and some of these silos, they were like destroyed. How come the Atlas missiles were just abandoned and how come they weren't destroyed? Um, easy answer to the Soviets. Um, back when we decommissioned uh, the Titan I um, and the Atlas, there were no uh, arms agreements in place. So the uh, Air Force literally said, we will demill these, which amounts to taking the missile out, taking the warhead out, and cutting the uh, the wires that connected the launch console and everything in the silo together. It, it was kind of a, uh, a joke as far as demilling goes. <laughs> um, and then they literally shut the door, turned off the lights, or turned off the lights, shut the door, and, and ran. Um, with the Titan II, um, they had to destroy the top 25 feet of the silo and uh, bury the uh, entrances, uh, both the escape hatch or the escape uh, tube and the entryway so that it could not be reused at all. And that's a much larger missile and a much larger warhead. And that was part of one of the uh, arms agreements that they had to decommission those, or that's the way they had to decommission those. And the same thing is true with the uh, Minuteman sites that they decommissioned. They had to destroy the first 25 feet of the uh, launch tube assembly and that. Now, uh, just kind of plugging uh, a museum, if you're ever down in Tucson, uh, go to the Titan II Missile Museum. It is incredibly awesome. Um, a great way to view uh, an artifact like a uh, ICBM uh, in its... Uh, in its setting, uh, you can actually launch the missile. Missile. I had the pleasure of doing that. You turn the key um, in uh, concert with the deputy commander, and 58 seconds later, the Titan II would have uh, would have launched. Um, I'll have to touch base with you afterwards and see if I can find a website for that. I'd love to check out that and uh, make a trip out there sometime. It'd be really interesting. So the Atlases, they were just completely abandoned up in up in this area, and um, Many of them went into disrepair. They started filling up with water, and many of them sat and you know for 40, 50 years collecting water and, and such. And so uh, many of them just are now completely destroyed on the inside. I think now would be actually a, a neat opportunity to uh, show some video of, of one of these Atlas silos that you have visited. Um, and uh, where is this silo located that, that we're going to take a, a walk through? Do you want to, the uh, dice, our dice site that I showed you a little bit earlier? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, you can share, share it from your side. Site three. 
Yeah, you know, let's see if I can do this. It'll take me a second here to switch over. That's okay. Okay, you should have the picture now. Yep, we're in full screen. Okay, a little bit of background on this. Uh, this is uh, January of this year, actually, and uh, I'd gotten to know a couple of the owners down there. Um, and usually the way that uh, I get favors like this is I'll say, oh, you want to uh, do a little work in your silo? I'd be glad to help. Um, and I'll show you some pictures, uh, what it looks like uh, when you get elbow deep in, in research in some of these uh, launching facilities. But this is a very clean facility. It's been, uh, of course, uh, salvaged. And the gentleman that owns this is eventually going to turn it into uh, what he calls a very large man cave. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's a great guy. It's all the owners down in, in Texas here that I've met so far, they're just great people, along with uh, most of the, the folks up in, in Plattsburgh, too. So this is the uh, the wedge that you see, and we're going to enter this, and it'll take us down to the launch control center. All right, site three, Clyde, going downstairs. It's a nice dry site. So the officers would have been already uh, semi-authenticated going through the gate with their vehicle. So we come around. Um, couple 90 degree corners, I'm gonna pause it right here. Um, 90 degree corners are to um, lessen a blast wave um, should it decide to enter the uh, the wedge at the top and come down. So every 90 degree lessens the uh, blast by some, some amount. Um, what we're headed into now is the uh, area that the crew would go into. The only one door would be opened here and it's opened by the uh, commander in the launch control center. And you see the circle kind of in the middle there. It's cut out of steel. There had been a camera there. The crew would go in. They'd close the door. And um, if the commander didn't, didn't recognize everyone by face, they'd have to show their badge to the camera. Um, and there was a phone on the wall so you could you know talk to the commander. There's also a button on the wall, kind of like a doorbell, to let them know that you're actually in the containment area. And, yes, there have been crews that have been stuck in there and several of the... Uh, uh, enlisted or officers uh, didn't quite make it back to their crew status after that. <laughs> it's just very claustrophobic, very small area. Yeah. area. And then we go into the blast vestibule. Now, here at this site, both doors, uh, well, one door is actually welded shut, but you could only have one of these blast doors open at any given time. There was actually a mechanical linkage between the doors. Um, and I've only seen one functional. And pause it for just one second. Mm -hmm. um, those blast doors, I, I think I recall you telling me that there was some sort of um, uh, problem with the construction of all of the Atlas silos where there was a leak that occurred in that area. Am I, am I right on that? Correct, yes. The, uh, actually, let me go forward a little bit more. Right, right up and through here they would usually have issues because this is a cold construction joint and this is a standalone uh, blast vestibule. I do have construction pictures if anyone's interested. Again, if you want more detail and or if you can't sleep at night, uh, send me an email and I can put you to sleep real quick. <laughs> so this, the next blast door has been cut through so that because they couldn't uh, open it. When these sites were finally uh, done salvaging, they welded these doors uh, some better than others, and this one was uh, welded very well. So when they got in, they had to cut their way through. And these stairways are not quite 
Well, they're a little over three foot wide. They're very, very narrow. And this is how um, some equipment would get in there is through the top. So that was, I'm sorry, that was a real quick uh, tour of level one of the LCC. This is um, completely stripped. Um, there would have been partitions up here. There would have been toilets over here, showers, um, a kitchen. Uh, these is, I just call it general living quarters up here. All right, you're going down to uh, level two now, down the stairway. And this is very well lit, obviously. Um, he's had this site for 10 years and has been, you see the uh, modern breaker panel over there um, has electrified it and add the lights. And that is the owner there off to the right. Now this is uh, level two over here where that green panel is. That's where the launch uh, control panel would be over here would be uh, facility status um, in the background, been a small office batteries over here in this general area. Um, they call it the communications room. It's where most of the cables that came from the silo would come in here and then um, branch back out to whatever uh, instrumentation was here in, in the silo. And this is, this is the business end. This is where the crew would have spent most of their time um, babysitting the missile. Level two, just turn the lights on, so it's a little bit dim. The other thing that's interesting on this one, back here you'll see this is actually metal um, siding. And that's so that you have a big, huge Faraday cage that um, electromagnetic pulses can't really penetrate. And that was all the way around. The, the ones that aren't there uh, rusted away. You can see rust over here. And wasn't the Faraday cage an example of the fact that these were a deterrent and not a first strike capability because um, these, these uh, the LCC needed to be operational if Russia was launching missiles? Yeah, and that was one of the, the big issues. Um, There's a couple of test shots where they detonated uh, nuclear devices, uh, I want to say 60,000 or feet higher um, south well, in the South Pacific, and it caused uh, one of them caused uh, lights to fail in Hawaii. Oh boy! It, it is serious business, and what you'll see in these sites is that anytime there's a joint, and you can see this in the Titan II Museum too. Anytime there's a joint, you will find a grounding wire, and it typically is a copper braid that uh, closes a gap between maybe a, a gasket on a sewer line or on a, some type of pipe. If I see one, I'll point it out. There's actually one on the handrail here I didn't see. The tunnel. So of, of note, this was added after the sites were built. All this bulk here, and there actually used to be a beam there. And that was due to two, actually three accidents where a missile was lost in the silo. And it blew the uh, blast door. It distorted that. You'll see that in a minute. And they put this, what they call the debris door there, just to um, avoid any kind of overpressure into the launch center. Wow. So this is the uh, tunnel that goes out to the silo. And this is where most people will hit their head because a lot of that's not cut out. You don't realize it's there. The uh, the sites there in Dias or in Abilene uh, had weird settling. They didn't uh, tamp the soil down right. So they had, there's one blast door, then the second one in the silo. Now we'll come into the silo on level two. And this is, the, again, I can't tell you how, I don't know what the right words are, cautious you have to be. This is a well-lit silo, and this is what people see, and they go, oh, I can just walk into these. 
So see this board right here? A lot of sites, there's a, uh, a steel um, hinged uh, walkway there that's usually very thin. And when you step on it, um, it breaks on you. And you have an express elevator down to either um, 170 feet or wherever the water happens to be. And you have about three foot clearance there. So you're going to bounce off the cribbing and not have a happy landing. A little graphic, aren't I? (laughs) Well, I think it's good to be graphic with something like this because um, you really have to know the silo inside and out and and where all the dangerous areas are. I mean, where this video is standing right now is, uh, what is it, level two? Is that where the the tunnel came out on? Yep. This is a facilities elevator. Um, This is only of interest. that's what the crew would take up and down or the maintenance guys take up and down to look at stuff that's going on in the silo or perhaps the missile. Over here, you see a spiral staircase. And uh, this is kind of a fun story. One of the uh, BMATs, um, I asked him a question. I said, what'd you guys do once you finished your jobs um, if you're in the silo? He says, well, occasionally we'd race the facilities elevator up to level two from the basement. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you got to uh, use your time wisely, right? So those guys had fun. This is an exhaust vent for uh, gaseous oxygen from the missile that would vent outside. I'm going to kind of skip here a little bit. Sorry about this, guys. So this is going up to level one. So we're going up one level. Up here was the uh, biological and, um, well, it's a charcoal filter for the silo. They had a similar setup uh, for the LCC. But this is HVAC on a beyond industrial scale. Is to purify the air. These are all uh, air filters, and they would have been full of charcoal, um, all right. granulated charcoal uh, filters. This first time I've seen the uh, HVAC stuff. In- so there's not a whole lot of interest up here. So I'm going to kind of scoot through this. Other than you won't see these structures in many silos at all. That's that's what we call low hanging fruit in the salvage business. Why they left them is beyond me. But everything is beefy, and this is uh, what I affectionately call sledgehammer engineering. If we're not sure, we'll add another uh, structure or two, and it's going to be beefy. And that's what you will see um, up here. They basically spared no expense with these things. Yeah, no, they made them so that, uh, let's see, I'm going back. This is level three. The only thing of note on level three is that that's where the launch sequencers were, and uh, they had a no loan zone policy. Once actually, once you entered the LCC, you always had to be accompanied by somebody um, because once you're in the silo, you can do the uh, what's that uh, famous movie? Get the bright light out. Yeah. But anyway, you, you could in theory launch the the missile from inside the silo. So you had to be accompanied by somebody who was at your clearance level or higher, right? Is that is that the way it worked with the no loan zone? Yeah. I've never really heard a definitive uh, statement on, do you have to have an officer and an enlisted, but um, enlisted guys and officers, you had to have two. doesn't matter who, just two. Okay. At least two, if not more. So there's a good example of all the dust and um, debris that's still in the silo. I mean, this is not healthy stuff to be inhaling by any means. I don't know if you can hear me too well, but I do have a dust mask on and it's pinching my nose. It sounds like I have a cold. I'm going to skip ahead here. Otherwise, we'll uh, kind of get lost. Um, I'm going to skip a couple levels. The spiral staircase is just honestly a hoot to go down if it's in great shape. And this one was. Um, okay, this is, uh, I'm just going to kind of pause it here. 
Uh, let's get a little better picture. Those are the springs. This is one set on, and they were opposing. So there's four sets of these springs and hangers that the entire steel structure was hanging from. Now, really quick, uh, Jeff, I've got a question from the chat room. Um, do you know much about the climate control system or the ventilation and uh, what happens if, in, in case of a blast from, a, from an incoming attack from an enemy? I've, I actually have had that uh, interest, too. It's like, okay, what happens when? Um, there are huge blast valves. Um, they're, I'm trying to think, probably three or four feet and they look like big mushrooms and they're made out of steel. There are two on the inlet side and two on the exhaust side. And in the silo, as with the LCC, if there was a blast detected, which would occur with, a, there was an antenna under the ground, there was an optical detector, if they saw a flash, um, a flash in, I'm trying to remember what else there was. There are three things that had to happen where they said this is probably a, an attack. And once it detected that, these things would slam shut. And as soon as that blast was detected, the diesel generators would start up because you're assuming that the utility power uh, would be lost. Well, they just shut off all the air in the exhaust. And I had asked the question, how long do you, how long can that live that way? And they estimated uh, maybe six hours with just the volume of air that's in the silo with the diesels running. Wow. Now, in the launch control center, um, it's much longer. I, I've never really heard a definitive word, but you've got five guys breathing stale air in a huge uh, cylinder. So, uh, but anyway, the, the diesels would be running. Uh, if they needed to, they would uh, open the launch doors and ready for launch. So that was kind of the thought behind that. We're going to slam everything tight, make it hard. Um, and if we need to launch, we'll be ready to launch. All right, I'm going to put you back on your video if you have anything else you want to show in that video. Um, let's go down to the basement because that's kind of funny. Not funny, but uh, just to give you an idea. So it gives you an idea of the scope of this. This is 185 feet deep, um, and he's scrolling ahead in the video to uh, get all the way down to the bottom. And you'll also notice I have a sweatshirt on, gloves. I also have safety glasses, and a, uh, I think I had a hard hat on here. There's what we call widow makers that hang above you. So there's the, the man cage ladder. That's 40, not quite 45 feet. So that'd be 20, half of 45 feet going down that. Um, and we'll just kind of go quick. You get halfway down and they give you a breather. Actually, that's looking into the basement that's full of water. I missed the halfway point. So this is on level eight. This is where the cryo tanks would be stored. And the one thing I wanted to show is actually, and there may be a word here that's inappropriate, so I'll kind of caution everyone up front. And this, I have to get a little bit further. I'll let it play here. There is a hole right there. That's where a friend of mine fell through. Oh, boy. And he was hanging on by his armpits, literally. Um, he was very fortunate he didn't get cut. He was very fortunate he didn't fall down there because that's about six foot of water. So he had, would have had about an eight-foot fall into the water. Oh, God. Hit the water. So that's why I say these are dangerous. Yeah, I'll say. So that's kind of what I wanted to show there. And you wouldn't know it because you're on top of garbage. And he didn't realize he was not on a support beam. So that's it happens to the of us. So let me go back up. This is just on level eight. And I get to laugh at myself here. That's kind of 
So here I am. And I to look down. I don't even want to think about it. I'm also petrified of heights. That's why I'm all the dust particles. That's why I'm wearing a dust mask. Mostly that's rust, but I'd hate to get that stuck in my lungs. All right, halfway. So I'm yelling up to a guy that's staying on the actually level two so that if I ran into any problem like bad air or something like that, at least they'd know I'm down there. So that's, uh, that's about it on this video, I think. Okay. I think now would be a good time what I'm going to do. And, and I know the, um, the video is about 30 seconds off from the live stream and I'm going to put a link in the, um, chat room for anybody who wants to join in on, um, Google Hangouts and ask some questions. Let's see if we can get anybody. Um, I'm going to copy the link here. Um, all right, one second. Yeah, while you're doing that, I'll just kind of talk a little bit about the what happened to the missiles and when. Um, out of the 13 missiles in uh, Plattsburgh, all but two um, were successfully launched as test vehicles for uh, reentry. Uh, they call them ABRES, a uh, blade of reentry. Uh, vehicle testing. So they'd fire them at a low arc and heat the uh, nose cone up um, as as best they could to test any new materials they had. So all but two uh, were launched successfully. And over the history of the Atlas uh, uh, launches um, uh, after, or I should say post being ICBMs, they were launch vehicles, um, from test articles on the way all the way through 19... I won't get the date right now, 95, I believe. That was the last launch. Not bad for 1950s technology. Um, they had a 75% uh, success rate. So it's actually a little bit higher than that. So I can say it's less than 25% uh, failure. And that kind of uh, answers the question, if we needed to launch these back in the day, would they have launched successfully? Over half, easy. And probably 90% would have launched. That's just incredible. Um with with that failure rate, some of them were, were tests, is that right? Yeah, and I haven't uh, gotten the definitive, um, or I haven't taken the time, I should say, to figure out which were the ABC uh, launches and how many of those were successful and not, and how many were um, just plain test articles of the D, E, and F, um, just to make sure the guidance systems were correct and uh, propulsion and that were correct. So you kind of have to exclude the pure test uh, launches that were failures um, and actually all the test launches for that matter. Now, spe speaking, of, speaking of the guidance systems, um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that there was something that you showed me in one of the, when we took our tour through the silo that the uh, there is actually a... Uh, something that pointed at the Northern star that you, that, that uh, would give the missile guidance. Is that right? That's correct. Um, every site um, in the U S uh, at least Atlas wise. And I think the Titan one, cause they, that, and even the Titan two had the same guidance system. They would align the, the missile or the, the, plat the, the platform, the guidance platform to the North star, because that doesn't change. And they would cite that, um, and literally through a tube, um, it'd be about 90 to 100 feet down in the silo, and the tube ran up at an angle so it would see the North Star, and then they would uh, do the math um, 
uh, and optically, believe it or not, with a culminator, um, align the guidance platform in the missile. And that's so it knows where it's at in X, Y, and Z space. That is just unbelievable. Um, and it, it would do the math while I'm thinking about it. Uh, it knew when it was up and locked how many feet that was, literally. And one of the other interesting things, I won't get this quite right. I can't remember which axis they solve. But when you see a launch, the vehicles always, they say, begin roll, and you see the vehicle roll. Once it's rolled, that fixes azimuth or ad I can't remember which, which of the three axes. So they only have to solve for two. And that's how the guidance uh, systems work even today. They have a planned roll, so that solves one of the axes, and then they only have to solve for the other two. Wow. Um the the last thing that I'm thinking of that uh, we sort of talked about yesterday was comparing these nuclear these Atlas missiles or even nuclear weapons today to the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh yes, um, let me kind of segue to that. You you can't compare them. Um, you know, we're talking the end of World War II. Most of us weren't around. Uh, I know I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I'm old, but not that old. I guess that goes into that category. Um, hang on here. Let me share my desktop again. There is a, uh, utility out there on the web called nuke map. You can search on it. Um, and you can see the link there. Uh, this is this my favorite. This is, I've been waiting for this the whole, the whole episode. So this is my favorite thing I want to show everybody. <laughs> so I can quit after this, right? Yeah. So this, this allows you to detonate a, uh, a, any, powerful uh, nuclear weapon and you know simulate what the effects would be so i set this up over plattsburgh um, and set it for a uh, 3.75 megaton uh, explosion that's what would be in the atlas missile and we'll detonate this and then i'll kind of walk through it so this immediate little circle here um, if you happen to be there you're probably the luckiest person in the world because you are no longer that's the, uh, the blast zone that would instantly be vaporized. And that's where you want to be if, ever, if any of these weapons would ever be used. Now, the next one out is moderate blast damage. That means most reinforced concrete buildings are flattened. So anything in this gray circle, for lack of a better explanation, is no longer. Now, you get out in this yellow circle here, and if you were facing the blast, either facing towards it or facing away from it, you're probably going to die from your third-degree burns. And you look at that, if you're familiar with the uh, Northwoods there, there's Danamora, and there's, uh, I can't remember what town's over here, but on the far side of Lake Champlain, um, most of those people, well, everything in that circle would be on fire, if not incinerated. Then you go out here and everyone goes, oh, this is just the one PSI ring. Phew, yeah, that's great. Um, that'll pretty much level a house. It's an instantaneous one PSI load. And if it doesn't level the house, it will break all the glass in the house. And there are uh, significant casualties from glass shards. So it's kind of like this is the knife zone. I hate yeah. to kind of say that, but that's what's going to happen. That is absolutely amazing. Um, what I'm what I going to do if you're watching the show or, or if you're listening to this afterwards, I'm going to put links to this in the show notes. And um, you can actually go pick your own city and you can pick the um, the 
any any type of nuclear weapon that is modern you can set the yield that you want and the casualty rate it's just fascinating to to see uh how destructive these types of things are and you have to remember this is only a portion of it you can also estimate what the casualties would be although it it doesn't really matter um but this is just the blast um the radioactive radioactive fallout from this is a whole nother story and the long-term effects is a whole nother story um, and this doesn't really highlight it, although this will give you an idea of these are very large, horrible weapons, and they should never be used. Absolutely. Um, it looks like I think everybody in the chat room is camera shy, so I don't think anybody's coming on. Um, so I think, uh, is there anything else that you want to add about this uh, podcast, in this podcast that uh, we haven't talked about so far? Um, let me hop over here real quick. Um plugging my website here, you'll find a lot of uh, information uh, about the training that the, the uh, enlisted and uh, officers went through. Um, historic timelines, kind of fun for the uh, 556 SMS. Uh, there was one quip in there that I, I put in there because it was kind of humorous. While they're building this, they had a uh, rabies outbreak and there were foxes and raccoons and smaller animals that had come wandering up to the large equipment, you know, the trucks, the tractors and that. And they didn't at first really know what was going on. Then they realized these animals are rabid. So they um, hired people to take care of that problem. <laughs> so, you know, the real world hits the real world. So Jeff's website is www.atlasbases.homestead.com. That's where you're going to find uh, his website with all that information that you're seeing. And you'll see some of the sites as they are today. Um, again, if anybody wants uh, more information or uh, would like to see a uh, photo or something of construction or something, uh, drop me a note. Maybe we can uh, uh, take care of that for you. Great. And if, if you, uh, I'll, I'll put the email also in the show notes in case anybody's interested. Uh, you could also send me an email if you want to get in touch and I'll, I'll uh, forward you any information that I have. Um, so thank you, Jeff, for coming on today. It was, it was a whole lot of fun talking Atlas missiles. Uh, it's very informative and, and hopefully uh, uh, I, it seems to be as very well received in the chat room. And I'm sure everybody that's listening at home is, is thankful for you coming on the show. So we definitely appreciate you uh, coming out today. I enjoyed it very much, and I'm sure there's no questions from our uh, our nameless, faceless people in the chat room. So, uh, if anybody wants to join in on Hangouts, this is your last opportunity. I know there are there's at least uh, um, seven or eight people that have been um, kind of posting comments. Somebody else already found the nuke map uh, for me and posted the link. So, uh, looks like everybody's camera shy. So, I, I think I will will uh, sort of wrap things up here. Um, so, I'll I'll post a your website on the show notes. And uh, if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to either one of us and we'll be happy to um, uh, give you as much information as we can. Um, again, we'll uh, just say that message out that uh, these are not safe places to travel by any means. Um, these are very dangerous places. Uh, but what's what's really neat about it is the history behind these places, um, the the these Cold War relics that were just abandoned over time. That's my favorite part of it is, um, you know, how they were in use for about three years and then decommissioned and not to be used again. And um, they're part of history that people are forgetting about. And um, some people who are maybe fans of Cold War history are are 
interested in it and they they research it and they learn about it but um, you know so many people from my area uh, don't even know where they are they don't even know they exist um, they may have heard a rumor that there was a missile silo somewhere in the area but they just they they just don't know anything about it and um, it's kind of sad so I like keeping the the, the history aspect of it uh, is is what makes me interested in it and there's if you want to learn more about the history of it there are lots of atlas missiles websites you can check out maybe i'll put some show links of the lows in the show notes as well but um jeff i'll get, leave it up to you is there anything else that you would like to say nope i think it covers it for me and again if anyone would like to get a hold of me atlas missile at gmail.com all right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the MRP Tech Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for, for listening. Thanks for watching on YouTube. And thanks for all those who joined us live today. We appreciate you coming out. We, we really appreciate your questions. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. You are a wealth of information, and you are welcome on the show any point in time. Thanks. It was a fun, fun, fun journey here. All right, everybody. That's going to do it for this week's episode. We'll see you next time.